are dying. It's also not great for average median ages of churches of Christ. We're not getting younger. We're actually getting older. And so what needs to change to make that happen? And we have a couple of options, right? We can double down on what we've always done, and we can say we just need to do more of that. Or we can actually say, well, let's, let's revisit this and see if we can't fit better with a family's rhythm. So let's talk about where we are now. Currently, according to who you read, 50 to 70% of our kids are leaving the church out of high school. 50 if you count Barna, and um, there's one other group that hovers around 50. Lifeway came out with their study back in 2007 and said about 70%. They updated that in 2019 and said it's 66%. But statistically speaking, it's, it's not a, a really a decrease. It's mainly just holding the same. So when we look at that, that's not great. We also look at our family structure, the way that we've done family ministry, and maybe we've been set up for families that don't actually exist anymore. So, for instance, there is a book called Parenting Beyond Your Capacity. It's a fantastic read if you're interested. And in there, there's a chapter called The Stop Family Syndrome. I don't know if you've ever gone and bought a frame at Walmart, and you've got a family in there that you know doesn't actually exist. Uh, several years ago, I actually want, got one, and I loved the way the family looked on the picture. So rather than take it out and put my family in there, I put it in my office and just left it with the stock family photo. And the beauty of that was people would come into my office and go, hey, who is that? And I got to make up a new story every time. I got to tell them about my cousins who were now living overseas and how they had discovered oil. And then sometimes it would be someone that we really don't talk about that much because of some scandal that had happened in the family and some bootlegging that had gone on. I mean, it was great every time I got to make up something new. But here's the deal. Every story was as real as that family because that family didn't exist. That family was a bunch of models. They got together. They probably weren't even related and they put them in a photo. I don't know how many of you have seen church billboards in the South. We have them a lot of times. They'll put there and they'll put a picture of a family and they'll say, Celebration Church, come join with us. And you look at that family and you're like, nah, they're not real. Like, if they are, they spend a ton of money on dental work. Like, their hair is all too good. Like, I, you know, you go to our church, those people aren't there, right? We're just normal, normal people. But yet, I think sometimes we build programs based off of families that no longer exist. Statistics say only one out of three families that attend a church is made up of a mom and a dad and just their biological kids. Only one out of three. Now, you may say, well, that's not here at this church. That's, that's fine. That's great. You're above average. But in most churches, that's it. But what I find is that most churches program for a mom and a dad and just their biological kids. And so when we schedule things, let's just say every month on the second Sunday of the month, for our teens and our kids. Then the families who have to switch out with visitation rights for moms and dads always miss because their Sunday away at mom's, at mom's house is always the second Sunday. But we just program like everybody's able. We could be out of rhythm with families. The scripture that was just read had some really neat ideas about how the rhythm of the family works. I kind of summed it up as mealtime, card time, bedtime, and morning time. And that scripture when they were talking about, hey, here's how you impress these things upon your children. But if you look at that, mealtime's not what it used to be, is it? Like, like in our family, breakfast time really doesn't exist. It's more like, come on, guys, I told you all it's time to get up, throw something down in your belly, and then head out the door. Or if you don't have time, at least brush your teeth because it smells horrible. And then they go out the door, right? There's no, there's no mealtime. In our family, we, we came, up, came up with a tradition, my wife did, called Fuller Fun Friday. 
And so we've done this ever since my kids were little, and every single Friday we do something as a family. It is our guaranteed one time a week that we're going to share a meal together. It may not be at the table, it may be at a restaurant, but we're always going to share a meal together. But we sometimes think when we're handing stuff to families, let's just say take-home material, that they've got this rhythm that actually doesn't exist. Drive time, it exists for a while, but sometimes it's just in a rush to get one place to the other. There's no conversation happening. When you think about bedtime routines, it's different for every family. Some, it's great when your kids are little, tuck them in bed, doing stories, doing songs. It's great. As they get older, you're just screaming at them to go back to bed because they're coming out of the bed. And so these rhythms are different. They're different for every family. So here's the thing that I want to focus on for the next several minutes. We also, as a church, may be putting too much importance on our influence as a church. We, for a long time in our history, realized that the spiritual, spiritual well-being and responsibility for our kids came from families and from parents. But with good intentions, I believe, the church started taking that away from families. We started developing children's programs, which are great, right? We want to teach kids in a, an appropriate way, but we started putting so much importance on the programs that we forgot where our role is. We, we switched the roles. Let me give you an example. Uh, well, let me hit this for a second. Several years ago, I discovered this group called Orange. They already existed. I didn't discover them, but they already existed. I came across them, and I started looking at some of their research. And and so I'm going to really briefly go through some stuff I shared last night. So for those of you who are there, I apologize, but hopefully it will be a good reminder. They said there are two huge influences in a kid's life. There's the church, and then there's the family. They're the two biggest influences. But here's how it breaks down. A church, on average, is going to get a kid 40 hours a year. You take 52 weeks in a year, 52 Sundays, take away sickness, take away visitations with moms and dads, take away vacations, and you're going to get a kid average 40 hours a year. The family, if you just take eight hours a day of them being awake and having access to parents, multiply that by 352, you're going to get 3,000 hours. So 40 hours versus 3,000 hours. But the problem is, is that we put so much importance on our 40 hours Almost like it matters more. And we don't decide that we're going to partner with that. So what Orange said is, we believe that two combined influences are going to be greater than two influences working independently. Still great influences, but what if we partner with that? What if we took our 40 hours and we did something different with it? So they came up with this concept of combining colors. The yellow representing the light of the church, the red representing the heart of the family, and then those two colors combined make orange. And so it's a constant reminder that everything that you do is to combine those two influences. At our church, all the kids know that Mr. Brian is always going to have something orange on. So today, I have orange socks. Okay, And so they always know I'm going to have orange on because it's a constant reminder. The kids come to church, they actually get extra points in their little books if they just wear the color orange. Now, why do we do that? It's a constant reminder to the families that we want to partner with them. This is not all about us. Orange is a strategy, and that's important to keep in mind. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is that if you, coming out of this pandemic, want to reevaluate how you do ministry, I believe, after doing this strategy since about 2008, that this is a fantastic model regardless of tradition, regardless of location, regardless of socioeconomic background. This works because it's about people. It's not about resources. It's about people. And we're going to get to that in a second. But the, the difference is, is that this has an end in mind. This is saying, hey, here's our kids, and rather just say we want to just get them educated, it's by the time they get to preschool, we want them to know this. 
and we want them to feel this. By the time they get done with elementary, we want them to know this and feel this. And so what I always say is that a program meets an immediate need and a strategy gets people from one place to the other. And, and that's the difference. But in, in my history in working with churches, a lot of times we just do programs. So let me go through really briefly what we call the five essentials of Orange. Now, I'm going to have to hit these really quickly. If you have any questions about them, come up to me afterwards, and I'm going to rest on a few more than others, and then we're going to end with basically kind of two thoughts, two bottom lines. This is a guardrails, if you will. The first thing, if you're going to do rethink family ministry, you need to make sure your leaders are all aligned. Here's what I mean by that. You can have volunteer leaders, great volunteer leaders, running a children's program or a youth ministry. But if the elders don't know what's going on, then you're not aligned. You've just got a silo, independent program running on its own. And what that means is that the leaders that are higher up are going to have to deal with damage control. If somebody doesn't agree with something the children's ministry is going on, they go to the elders and they're just like, hey, can you believe this is going on? But if you have a strategy, the elders are able to say, oh, no, no, no. Here's exactly why we did that. Let me give you an example. So at our church, there was a program that we used to do called Teen Leadership for Christ, TLC. It was great. It involved a lot of man and woman hours of work to train kids to do everything from drama to puppets to song leading to, to whatever. It was huge at this church. Well, I came in and I said, hey, look, we've got a strategy and this is our strategy. And so we walked, started walking through these five essentials that you'll see the whole list in a second. And at the end of it, I said, TLC is a great program, but it doesn't meet enough of our essentials. So we're not going to do it. Well, as you can imagine, if a program is that big in your church and someone says, hey, we're no longer going to do this, it's going to cause some problems. So they went to the elders and they said, why are we no longer doing this program? And they said, and they were able to say, because the leaders were aligned, well, that's because it doesn't fit our strategy. Here's our strategy. It's a great program. There are some great churches that do it. What was beautiful for us is we were able to say, there's a church right down the road that does it. We will get the practice times for you so you can go down there. We would love for you to do that if that's your passion. But for right now, for our strategy, this is what we're going to do. So your leaders have to be aligned, no matter what, whether it's orange or, or whatever. The second thing is we've determined that you have to refine the message. Now, this one's pretty intense, so let me kind of share what, what we mean by that. If we've got 40 hours a year on average with a kid, we have to place more intentionality in what we share with our kids to the point that I am willing to let some Bible stories not be told so that I can share others. We say it this way, everything in the Bible is important, but we believe not everything in the Bible is the most important. So for instance, if I know I've got a preschooler in my group, and I've only got 40 hours a year with them, and I know a preschooler's greatest need is safety, I'm going to make sure I share stories with them about God being a safe place. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put some other stories that maybe in preschool curriculum, that was it, but I'm going to make sure that I share with them What's the most important for their face? Now, it gets a lot of pushback when I share this with churches of Christ because we have prided ourselves in a long, for a long time on being Bible people and knowing the Bible. And we, by this, this point right here, this essential, are not saying that the Bible is not something we should learn. What we're saying is we've realized that we only have 40 hours Let's even up that, because some places it's like, no, we have Sunday morning, we have Sunday night, we have Wednesday night. Go ahead and multiply those all in if you want, and then figure out an average that still pales in comparison. And so we want to make sure that we refine our message. Now, not just in what we present, but how we present it. We want engaging communicators. We want an environment that the kids want to come to. We want them to be able to come into a place, feel like this is their home. We say it this way. We say every kid needs a person and a place. If a kid comes into our location and says, man, this... This is not, I don't want to be here. 
just in the location. I'll give you an example. We have a room that uh, we have just revamped. At our church, we just call it room 213. Okay, you may have one like that. Like it's just, it's the room everybody knows. It's the only numbered room everyone knows. It's room 213. You would think that would be on the second floor. It's not. We don't have a second floor, but for some reason they labeled it 213. It was the church library. It's been um, a Bible class, an adult Bible class. It has just been this all-purpose room. It smelt weird in there. And we would go in to have kids programs or banquets. And as soon as we would walk in to set it up, we would just be like, who wants to spend an hour in this room? Like, it's just, it was depressing. And so we made a drastic call to say we want this room to be more engaging where people want to come in. So we actually got rid of the majority of the library that was in there because no one ever went in there anyway. We donated it to a group that could use it. We took out all the bookshelves. We painted the room a new color. We cleaned all the carpet. We put some shelves up. We put different props so that we can make it interchangeable. We have more people wanting to be in that room now than ever before to do everything from baby showers, just because the environment is more appealing. Now, I know that may seem like a simple thing, but I can tell you, if your message is the most important message in the world, like the message we have, you want to make sure you eliminate as many distractions as you can so you can share that message. So refining the message is another one. Next thing, huge one, partnering with the guardians. We used to say partner with parents, but because of some facts that I mentioned earlier, we no longer say that. We're just going to say if you are a guardian of a child, we're going to make sure that you know that we partner with you. And if there is an activity that we schedule, it's going to be something that's designed with you in mind. The fourth essential, elevating community. This is probably, if you, if you hear nothing else I say out of this deal, um, recognize that every kid needs a person in a place. The person is huge. We rely on what we call small group leaders. We don't have Sunday school teachers. We have small group leaders because we ask them to do more than teach. In fact, we don't even ask them to teach. We have a communicator for that that shares a Bible story with a larger group. And the small group leader is responsible for taking those kids or teenagers and saying, let's unpack that a little more through age-appropriate activities, crafts, games, to just simply sitting down and having discussion questions based on the phase that they're in. And, and what we have decided is that I can't do everything for every kid. I can't even do everything for many kids but I can do everything for a few. We call that leading small. We're like, we're going to do for a few what we can't do for everyone. And we put adults in the lives of kids before they need them so they'll be there when they need them. And when they sit down in a small group with an adult leader that cares about them, it means the world. Um, let me give you one example. I shared this last night. There was a lady at a church that I worked at in Longview, Texas, named Jill Simpson. She's actually the children's minister there now. They hired from within. It was a really cool story. But she was just a small group leader in our program. And my oldest son, who is now, he'll be 19 next month, but my oldest son at the time was eight, nine years old when Jill Simpson became his small group leader. And my son was very standoffish. He's an introvert, similar to me. Some people find that hard to believe, but I'm very much an introvert. And so he did not want to engage with anybody. But Jill Simpson said, I'm going to make sure that I speak to Dallas, that's my son's name, every single week. And so she would find him, and not only find him, she would always give him a hug, and she would always say, I love you and God loves you. Every Sunday, my son would just cringe, and he'd be like, yeah, and he'd kind of go away like he acted like he didn't like it, right? But I started to notice that after a while, on Sundays, after small group was over, after worship was over, whichever one, he would look around to see where Miss Jill was. Because he knew that she was going to show up. She was going to come hug him, and she was going to tell him something. So she, he would kind of be acting like he wasn't looking. And then he'd see Miss Jill, and he'd, he'd smile and put his head down, and she'd come give him a hug. 
And I'm going to tell you, if Miss Jill wasn't there, it ruined his day. Like he'd get in the car and it'd be like Jill was on vacation or something or she was sick and at home. And we'd be like, hey, buddy, what's the matter? And he goes, I don't know. I don't know what's the matter. Well, we knew what was the matter is because he missed Miss Jill. There was something about that community that he had. And I guarantee you when Miss Jill shared a Bible story with my son, it went a lot further than anybody else because that community was there. You may say, let me, let me put it this way. You don't have to be a great communicator to reach kids and teenagers, but you do have to like them. This is the illustration I used last night. We all have, in, at least in my family, we had an A set of grandparents and a B set of grandparents, ones that we liked and we didn't mind going and seeing, and then ones that were like, eh, whatever, um, right? So I always say that if you have an A set of grandparents, I can guarantee you the reason you like them more is because you feel like they like you more. Not that they love you. You say, okay, my grandparents love me. But I guarantee you your favorite people are the people that you think like you. So it's one thing to tell a kid you love them. It's a whole other thing to tell a kid and show a kid that you like them. And you can do that in community. I shared last night that we're never going to outspend Disney. We're never going to be out-program our high schools and our middle schools with activities that kids can be involved in. The one thing that we can do is we can out-relationship them. I don't even think that's a term, but I just made it up. We can out-relationship them. We can say we are going to put adults in kids' lives and speak truth to them, the same truth that the parents would speak and that we can partner with so that that influence goes further. And then the last thing is this, as far as an essential. We want to influence service. This doesn't mean mission trips. This means influence in the local church. I got to meet some kids already that have been, just since I've been here, that have helped out with local church stuff, whether watching kids last night or running the audio and video back in the back. I mean, we've got kids that y'all are already reinvesting, right? But here's the thing. In my experience, more often than not, we let kids graduate from our church and we tell them, go be the church, and we never let them have an opportunity to do that while they were with us. We never said, hey, I'd love for you to come lead a group of small, a small group of kids I'd love for you to uh, be able to work in our AV or I'd love for you to, because we have defined leadership for some reason as what people can do on a stage or behind a pulpit rather than what they can actually do in the life of a church. And when we take a kid or a teenager and we say, listen, I feel like you got this gift and we're able to use that in whatever capacity, it's great. We have a a girl in our group named Ella Fox. She is uh, an aspiring author. She actually went so far as to self-publish her own book. You can buy it on Amazon now. But we discovered that she actually loved to write. Well, there's not a whole lot of places currently that we could use that. So we started saying, okay, she's got a gift of leadership. How can we influence that to serve our church? So Orange had this deal that came out and said, we want teenagers to write some curriculum so that they can share it with other teenagers. We told Ella about it. She submitted some stuff, and Orange is going to use it to go all over the country with She's influencing the next generation by using her gifts and talents. We want to find those gifts. And I'm going to say this regardless of gender, because we want to be able to say, hey, ladies, let's find out where your gifts and talents are. How can we use those in the church? We want to be able to do it. We got a little girl named Raya. I shared this story last night. It's one of my favorite stories. So Raya was in fourth, fifth grade, and she is helping co-lead a group of preschoolers, okay? She's preschool small group leader. And she comes in, and one day there is this young man, young boy. He's probably five years old, and he is not acting like he should act. And he, she, she is about lost it with him, right? She's only like eight years old, but she acts like she's an old mama. And she's like, he will not do what I'm saying. So she came up to me, and she said, Mr. Brian, Mr. Brian, he's not acting like he should, and it's, it's not good. And then she said this, 
how is he ever going to lead kids when he can't act right? Now, here's the shift that never would have happened when I was a kid. It's expected in our church that kids one day are going to lead other kids. So much so that an eight-year-old sees a behavior problem as not just a behavior problem, but as a problem later when they're serving back in the church. That's huge. I mean, it is huge to know that kids are just expected that at some point they are going to serve in the church. So it's, pretty, it's a pretty big deal. So let me end with a couple of things. Two bottom lines, if you will. Number one, losing half our kids on graduation or after graduation is not acceptable when I watch. Sometimes I go into groups and I have them repeat that statement. Just like, is that true? Like, I'm not going to do that with y'all, so don't, don't get scared. But losing half of our kids after graduation is not okay with me. And, and it's so not okay with me that I'm not going to go through insanity and try to fix a problem by doing the same thing that caused the problem. I'm going to try something different because I think it's worth it. Now, I'm going to also give this caveat. I use an orange strategy right now. I think it's a pretty cool deal. It may not be the answer either. But I'm willing to try it for the sake of not letting 50% of my kids go. The second bottom line is this. The ministry that we lead is not just designed to keep our own, but it's designed to bring more in. For too long, I think the church, even though we call ourselves evangelistic, we have concentrated more resources and programs on just maintaining our own and not so much on the ones that aren't in our doors. Right now in Georgetown, it sounds similar to Belgrade. We're exploding with growth. We're exploding with neighborhoods. We've got neighborhoods popping up all around our campus, huge, huge subdivisions. And we're sitting there as a leadership and we're saying, okay, we've got this amazing opportunity, not just to reset from a pandemic, but to say, are we, is our mission and our vision Good for our resources, and is it good to reach those that aren't currently here? And I'm not talking just about numbers, right? Like, we can sit here and I can say, hey, it, we're not happy with the, you know, however many hundreds show up on a Sunday morning. I just actually was getting texts this morning from my team in Georgetown. This was our first Sunday back, as I mentioned, and they were all excited because first Sunday back, there were already 200 people in the worship center. We're a church of, you know, 500 or so on a Sunday, but we didn't know how many were going to show up, and they're all pumped now that 200 are there. And we sometimes, we sit and we're talking about, okay, we're at 500 now, but how are we going to get bigger, bigger, bigger? And, and we have to slow down and say, no, 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 it's not, not about the numbers. However, it is one gauge to see how we're being effective in our community. And, and so when we design a program, whether it's here and you, you use Orange or not, recognize it's not just about stopping kids from leaving, but it's about creating a ministry that invite kids and teenagers to come in. All right, so let me leave you with one final personal story, and then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll close, and we'll have a, an invitation opportunity for you to go back to the back and, and share. And This is just me being kind of real and transparent. When I was growing up, uh, I had parents that no doubt loved me, but I, I did not feel uh, as much love and concern, looking back, as I did from other places. That all changed my junior year when I met a lady named Pat Turner. Pat Turner came to our predominantly white Christian high school, and she was an African-American lady that was in charge of now starting a drama program. And Pat Turner came in, obviously a minority of minorities in this particular environment, but she loved kids, and she loved seeing kids excel. And so she came to me one day and she said, hey, listen, we're starting this new drama department. She didn't know me from anybody. And she just said, I was wondering if you'd be interested in being in our theater program. We're just starting it up. 
And I was like, okay, what, what exactly does that entail? She goes, oh, we're going to do acting and whatever. And being a kid that was pretty insecure about myself, I thought the idea of pretending to be somebody else was really appealing to me. So I thought, yeah, I'll do, I'll do drama. Let's do that. So I, I started going in there, and what I got was not just a training in how to do theater, but it was a training in, in what it meant to have an adult pour into you. So, so much so that years later still, I will say that Pat Turner was probably the greatest influence on me of anybody that I've ever met. Because Pat Turner liked kids, she loved kids, and she shared through her own way and her own gifts what it meant to be made in the image of God and to be loved by God. She didn't have to preach a sermon to do that. She didn't have to have all the biblical knowledge in the world to do that. All she had to do was show that. And so my encouragement, my blessing to you is to find a kid. You can't do everything for everybody, but you can do something for a few. And so be Pat Turner. Be whoever poured into your life. I remember seeing a video of, of Mr. Rogers one time, and he was giving an acceptance speech for an award, and he asked this group of Hollywood elite to think about somebody that had poured into their lives. And he paused for 10 seconds of silence just for people to think about that. And he said, you just think it, I'll keep the time. And movie stars that are you know, actors and whatever, they're breaking down crying in the audience, remembering people that loved them and poured into them. Guys, we have the greatest message in the world and it's worth doing well. So what we're going to do now is have an opportunity. We know that anytime you get a room this size, there's, there's issues that we bring in. There's personal things that we bring in. And so if you've got a prayer request or a need or a confession or even a praise, there's going to be people in the back. They're going to be willing to take that uh, as we stand and as we sing. Is that what we do? We're standing and sing? Lord's Supper right now. We're going to do Lord's Supper, so we'll do that afterwards. Thank you for that. Thanks for your time, guys.